I'd like to start this morning with a few verses out of Psalm 40. Psalm 40, uh, the first three verses. This is a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Amen. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words and we thank you for the great, the great omnipotent and irresistible divine action that is described in it. You reaching down into our horrible condition in the miry clay, lifting us up out, which every one of us who have believed upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ have experienced. And we feel the power of your word in our hearts to a greater or lesser degree, but nevertheless we feel it. And we know that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, be with us this hour. Amen. Last week, we, uh, we looked at Theodore Frelinghausen, the Dutchman that came over from the Netherlands to America in 1720, the beginning of the year 1720. He, he was a, a wonderful specimen, if you will, of Reformed pietism. And if you remember, we, we looked at the distinction within uh, pietism between the Lutheran pietism, which more or less uh, prioritized subjective experience over uh, doctrinal integrity, or at least doctrinal precision. Uh, And that was because of unique situations in in, uh, Lutheran Germany with many, many controversies that were splitting hairs to a large degree. Uh, And so the reaction necessarily or understandably was... uh, into the inward, the reality, the vital piety that is necessary in the Christian life, which we all concur with. Uh, the Reformed pietism, was, of which Frelinghausen was a product, was much more wedded to the doctrine and the experience together as, as an inseparable unit, although it would have placed the priority on the biblical doctrine as being really the only sure foundation for that vital piety for subjective experience. And, and, and so there's an integrity about the Reformed pietism that is both very warm-hearted, but doctrinally sound and rich and, and exhaustive. Uh, that's what you get, that's, that's what you have historically with English Puritanism. That was a, a form of Reformed pietism as opposed to the German or, or Lutheran pietism. You also had that in the Netherlands, in Holland, uh, and it was it was embodied in the three forms of unity that we talked about: the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, of which we read a, a small portion of last week, and then the Canons of Dort, which we're going to encounter a little bit this morning because because we are necessarily going to have to talk about Arminianism and the Canons of Dort as a response to that Arminianism, which which also arose in Holland, in Netherlands, in the home of Theodor Frelinghausen, uh, which is where. Jacob Arminius 
uh, also was born. So we're, we're going to look at these things. We're going to transition from Theodore Freelinghausen into uh, the tenants, actually. But Arminius is, is actually going to take up a large portion of, of our study this morning. So we followed Freelinghausen from the Netherlands to America, to New Jersey in particular, to the Raritan Valley, which is r- roughly in the Newark area, just on the other side of the Hudson, uh, crossing over from New York. We followed him as far as the year 1726, so basically for five, six years from 1720, uh, five years of great contention, if you remember. He was preaching in this close, discriminatory way that is, that is probing the hearts and the various categories of his hearers uh, and applying the gospel to them in a very, very pointed way, like Thomas Hooker said, that I love to come back to the saying of Hooker that, that he was bringing the light by their bedsides as they were skulking under the covers uh, in their secret sins and unbelief and so forth and yet hypocritically they, they, they in their cold formality thought that they were fine uh, their foundation was, was, was uh, fundamentally one of self-righteousness not of poverty of spirit trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ so Freelinghausen attacked that basically and he was dogged very much like Luther was in his personality there was a downside to that Uh, nonetheless after five years conversions began to occur if you recall and a a wonderful turn of events happened in the Raritan Valley well as we come to uh, Gilbert Tennant this morning he's he's he was installed as a pastor uh, just south of Raritan, and he and Freelinghausen became very close and lifelong friends. So that's what we want to come to this morning. So as we come into the year 1726, and then in 1727, uh, Gilbert Tennant, as I just mentioned, uh, arrived uh, just to Freelinghausen South in New Brunswick, New Jersey. You can still go there today. Uh, he, was, he was a young Scots-Irish minister, uh, Presbyterian minister. He was only 23 years old at this time, so he was considerably younger than Freelinghausen. Freelinghausen had been born in 1791, uh, I'm sorry, 1691, and uh, Gilbert Tennant was born in 1703. So he was a dozen, dozen years younger, I think, if I'm calculating correctly. Well, he had actually arrived on the American shore in 1718, uh, several years earlier, when he was only 15, with his parents, his mother and father, and his three brothers and a sister. So the whole family came over from Ireland uh, in that year, 1718. The father, William, who we have a great interest in as well, uh, William had been born in 1763, right, right in, in the thick of the, that golden Puritan Age uh, as it was beginning to wane, you might say, but still some of the great Puritans were still alive. Uh, John Owen was still alive, uh, writing some of his best works at this point. John Bunyan was still alive. In fact, I think right about this time is when he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know the exact year. And then uh, John Flavel, who, who we've also heard from uh, the past week or two. So some of the great Puritans were still alive, and William actually is a, is a really good bridge if you want to, to, to uh, 
have a flesh, fleshly connection, as it were, between the Puritan era and the Great Awakening. He kind of bridges the gap there and partakes of both of those, both of those legacies. So William Tennant had been a, a priest in the Church of Ireland, which was in communion with the Anglican Church. So to all intents and purposes, uh, the, the Church of Ireland was, was more or less the Anglican Church. After several years as an Anglican minister, he realized he could no longer stay uh, in that church. And we'll get to those reasons just in a matter of seconds. So in the year 1718, he left with his, his wife, his children, and left everything behind and came to start fresh in America. And as soon as he came, he applied to the Presbyterian Synod of Philadelphia, which had actually just been formed the year before in 1717. So the, the Presbyterian Church in America was, was in its very, very infant stage at this point. So he applied. Uh, necessarily, he was asked why he was leaving the Anglican Church, and he gave these three reasons. Uh, first, their government, he said, by bishops was wholly unscriptural, a mere human invention. There was, there was no office in the church higher than the elder. And uh, the Anglican Church had made bishops who weren't pastors of any particular flock, uh, administrative authorities, if you will, uh, over, over a vast array of elders that had to submit to them. He said, this is wholly unscriptural, a mere human invention. Uh, secondly, he said, I could not be satisfied with their ceremonial way of worship. Uh, and, and the Puritans were classic antagonists of those ceremonial ways of worship. And then thirdly, and this is our primary point of interest this morning, uh, he said they're, they're conniving at the practice of Arminian doctrine. They're conniving, and that was a carefully chosen word, uh, they're conniving at the practice of Arminian doctrine. Well, all three of these things characterize the Puritans, of the 17th century, and they were the very reasons that William Tennant had to leave the Anglican Church. So we want to pause here right at the start before we get into uh, the historical narrative largely about the Tennants and examine the nature of Arminianism, which is always dangerous nowadays because uh, in, in, in the mainstream Protestant evangelical church, it, it's more or less the default position. It is the prevailing position in the evangelical church today, uh, but historically it is, it's unarguable that it's an innovation in the Protestant church. Arminianism is an innovation in the Protestant church. As such, as an innovation, the leaders of the Great Awakening opposed it with all their might. They said this is, this is a strike against the glory and power of God in the gospel. Uh, it's, it, it, it opposes it, and it injects human philosophy into the supernatural gospel of Christ, both, both in its uh, elevation of man, you might say, and man's natural condition since the fall, and in its bringing down the divine work that's necessary and that's involved in the act of converting a sinner, regenerating his heart from the heart. You remember question 31 in the Catechism. Uh, we, we quoted this in the first week, I believe, effectual calling. Uh, this, this so wonderfully captures the supernatural uh, agency that is involved in a person becoming a Christian. 
uh, effectual calling, whereby the Spirit convinces of and uh, convinces us of uh, our sin and misery, enlightens our mind in the knowledge of Christ, and renews our will. Thus, the Spirit persuades, but not only persuades, but enables us to embrace Christ freely offered in the gospel. So you see these these. Um, uh, as I used to tell to my junior high school uh, Sunday school students years ago, these, these power words in here that are all from the divine direction, convincing, uh, enlightening, renewing, persuading, enabling. This is all the work of God. And then finally, what, what is the, the, the result of that? Enabling us to embrace Christ freely offered in the gospel. Well, there's the human action, embracing but there's a, there, there's a whole uh, panoply, if you will, of divine acts and works that have, have come together in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish and to generate, if you will, this embracing of Christ freely offered in the gospel. Well, uh, okay, let's, let's come to Jacob Arminius. He was a Dutchman like Freelinghausen, as I said. His name, unlatinized, was Jacob Harmonson, a good Dutch name, Harmonson. He was born in 1560, uh, when many of the Reformers were still alive. In fact, John Calvin was still alive in 1560. 20 years later, when he was 20 years old, he uh, became supported by the state because he was a very gifted child. And in fact, I, I believe he was an orphan. And uh, so the state, seeing his gifts, his theological and intellectual gifts, sent him free of charge to Geneva, the great school, the great Protestant school in Europe. Uh, and there he was, he was tutored under Theodore Beza, who had worked very closely with John Calvin. And then after Calvin died, Beza became basically the, 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 uh, the embodiment of Geneva. Arminius was there in Geneva, on and off. He traveled around somewhat, uh, but for six years, more or less, he was there. And he came back to the Netherlands, and he took up a post as a pastor in the church in Amsterdam. And he immediately commenced a series of sermons on the book of Romans. And we're not going to get into too much detail, but we'll just, we'll just say uh, for now that his first departure of orthodoxy began to appear when he got to the seventh chapter of Romans. And he was interpreting the experience that Paul gives there in Romans 7. It's a great, it's a perennial question in the history of the church. Was Paul speaking of himself as a Christian? Or was he projecting uh, a convinced sinner, though yet unregenerate? Uh, This was a great question. It it still is in the Protestant church. Uh, The Reformed generally take the position that he was speaking from his own position about the indwelling sin and the struggle that every believer has to mortify his members which are upon the earth as Paul uh, instructs us to do. Well, Arminius couldn't believe that this was a Christian. Uh, there's, there's no great crime in that, but he, he, couldn't, he couldn't see it. Uh, so he said it must be an unregenerate man uh, who as such then was, Arminius admitted, was delighting in the law of God, which is what Paul says of himself there. So he has this a, a certain paradox, but he's choosing this side instead of, of what he sees as impossible in the Christian condition to be brought into any kind of captivity to sin whatsoever. It was a pastoral concern that he had. So he said, no, 
this is not the experience of a Christian, and therefore an unregenerate man can in fact delight in the law of God, even though Paul in the next chapter would say that the unregenerate mind is enmity against the law of God. It cannot submit to it, cannot subject itself to it. Nonetheless, Arminius was willing to live with, with, with a certain amount of contradiction there. Well, soon he was charged with departing from Dutch Reformed standards, those three forms of unity that we mentioned, which he had pledged to, uh, to commit to. That yes, he, he accepted and embraced them with all his heart. Uh, now he was charged with actually uh, going against his, his uh, commitment to those standards. He denied it. He absolutely denied it, uh, although privately to his students, and this is where the character of Arminius uh, begins to come into question somewhat, privately to his students, by many witnesses, he was saying something other than he was telling the authorities that were questioning him on these things. And therefore, among his students, he began to gather a following that was quite substantial, and in the coming years, it would prove to divide, actually, the entire Reformed Church in the Netherlands. Well... Even though he denied it soon, he was accused of holding even Pelagian views. So things were getting heated up in the Reformed Church in the Netherlands. This was towards the end of the 1500s, so we're going into the 1590s and in the early 1600s. All this is going on, and it's not getting resolved. This is what... Arminius said when he was accused of being a Pelagian. He said, The Pelagians attribute the faculty of well-doing wholly to nature, but my doctrine attributes it entirely to grace. That that sounds good. And it was true. He attributed everything to grace. There's no question about it. You can find it in his writings all over the place. But, he added, and this is the vital point, he said, This grace is present with all men. This grace is present with all men, lying dormant as it were, until they choose to use it, presumably choosing by uh, an innate wisdom and prudence that that they have. Uh, So they choose it, and they go forward from there. Well, Arminius says this, the ability to believe belongs to nature, believing to grace. And this is a very, very tricky statement. Uh, On the surface, nothing stands out, but if, if you think about it, and then if you, if you delve into his writings more, you understand, oh, he interprets this himself at length. And this is why he was getting into trouble, uh, which was typical of Arminius, to be slippery in his statement so that he could appear orthodox. But he definitely was not orthodox at this point. Well, he's making a distinction in this, in this short statement, which is in your handout. He's making a distinction there that his own teachers, Beza, certainly Calvin, all none of the reformers uh, would have recognized or allowed this distinction. And it's a distinction between the ability to believe as a kind of potential energy possessed by all men and believing itself. So the ability to believe, believing itself, as if they're two different things. As if uh, you could use an example, and that would be I have keys in my pocket. Well, this is the grace or the faith that, that Arminius says is present with all men. Uh, the, the, the ability to believe that belongs to nature, he says. It's, it's like all men have this faith buried in their pockets, but one isn't actually believing until the, the motion of the hand goes down and pulls them out. Now he's believing because he's, he's made this definitive, determinative action that draws, that uses the faith 
that he has. If he doesn't use it, then he's an unbeliever. But all men have it by nature, and now here's a man using it. So this motion of the hand is that decisive overture, which is produced by an unregenerate will. Because to some degree, he loves the law of God. He delights in the law of God. This is the action by which a man who's unregenerate makes himself of the elect. Now God has foreseen that, and that is what election consists of. A foreseeing of this reaching into the pocket and drawing out that faith and employing it. Uh, That was the essence, as as Arminius came to Romans chapter 9, that was the essence of that election that Paul taught in Romans 9. This is Arminius' view. Well, It's the essence of Arminianism. There's much more to it. But as far as our concerns uh, go this morning, that's as far as we're taking it. It recognizes that faith alone saves. It's not a heresy in that sense. Faith alone saves. And not only so, but behind this faith, there's sheer grace. It's all of grace. So as far as it goes, it's very good. But yet the activation of all of this hangs ultimately not on God's eternal purpose and will but on man's purpose and will. So man, and not God, is the decisive determiner in the whole affair. It's not as, as God himself had said to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, but God helps those who help themselves. That's a good two phrases that very well captures the departure of Arminianism from Reformed Protestantism. God helps those who help themselves. It's a crass statement. And no Christian surely uh, would be able to honestly admit that that's true. But that's the essence of the Arminian doctrine when it comes to saving faith. Well, to all this, Tennant would have said, but what What if, if God helps those who help himself? Tennant would have said, what when a man finds that he cannot help himself? When he is in that horrible pit that David described, when he is in the miry clay of unbelief, what then? What when he finds that, in fact, he is, like Lazarus, dead in the tomb. And he cannot come out and embrace Christ freely offered in the gospel. He's struggling with this sense of unbelief and inability. What then? Well, it's a category of destitution that Arminianism doesn't even allow. It doesn't even recognize. It it, it won't have anything to do with that category. Uh, And so, correspondingly, it doesn't grant Christ the proportional power uh, to say to a dead soul, arise and come forth. You see how the down, the upgrade of man's ability brings down the power of, of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit in the work of regeneration in the sinner's heart. Christ, Christ does not supernaturally awaken the dead because they're not actually uh, technically, precisely dead. They're ailing, they're ill, and so forth. There's a wonderful prayer of Augustine, which the Arminian cannot pray from the heart. And it goes like this. This is what Augustine says. You have snapped my chains. Your right hand had regard to the depth of my dead condition. Where through so many years was my freedom of will? From what deep and hidden recess was it called out in a moment? O Christ Jesus, my helper, my redeemer, my radiance, my wealth, and my salvation. That's a wonderful prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. But again, 
because of the theological position, uh, Arminianism simply cannot pray that prayer because it doesn't recognize the deadness of the condition on the one hand and the inability uh, manward and Godward. It does not recognize that this is something that Christ will do because in, in, the, words, in, the, in the words of a typical Arminian response to this, uh, and you've maybe heard it many times, uh, God is a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on you. Uh, and so Christ stands there, as it were, outside of Lazarus's tomb uh, and waits for Lazarus to arise. He's not going to infringe on the free will of Lazarus. That's, that's e- effectively the position that Arminius has, has put uh, his followers. Well, it's why William Tennant so abhorred Arminianism. On the one side, it gave sinners a power and a health just, just at the point where God would bruise them and humble them so that they know that they, they need a kind of help that they cannot conjure up in themselves merely by making a decision, so to speak. And so that's on the one side. It gave sinners this power and health that the Scripture does not give them. And on the other, it, it deserted those that actually had been humbled and bruised by the Spirit uh, just at their greatest need. It abandoned them. It said, well, the, the Arminian Gospel could do nothing uh, in addressing itself with any kind of medicine or remedy to this position. Uh, rather, to those that were humbled and deserted, uh, it made their duty, their, their exclusive duty, the very thing which is Christ's own calling and office. And that is, again, to say to a dead soul, arise and come forth. That's his calling through his spirit. And so... It, it, to, to use the phrase of Thomas Hooker, which is wonderful in this context, uh, this kind of teaching that Arminius was proposing plucked the crown from Christ's head, the glory from his work, and the praise from his grace. Well, this is what we were reading about in Psalm 40 there. That, that uh, in pre-Christ days is exactly what David was talking about. Well, Arminius died in the year 1609, uh, and left the, the Dutch Reformed Church rent asunder. Uh, they, they were in two completely different parties now, all uh, presumably under the Reformed head, and yet half of those Reformed people were saying, well, we really like what Arminius is saying. It makes an awful lot of sense. Well, in 1618, a national synod was called in the city of Dort, and this is where we get the canons of Dort. There were five canons produced, all... Uh, all very, very precisely in a response to the Arminian or the, the Remonstrance objections to Calvinism. They had five objections, and so the five points of Calvinism, as it turns out, are five answers to these objections. And I want to read at some length this when it's in here. I'm not going to read the entire portion in the handout, but most of it. Uh, canons three and four together concerning man's corruption and the manner of his conversion to God. The regenerating spirit penetrates into the innermost recesses of man, opens his closed heart, softens his obdurate heart, circumcises his uncircumcised heart. You see this biblical language here. Infuses new qualities into his will. Well, that right there is what the Arminians would never allow. He's not going to infringe that free will. Uh, It's as if man in his natural state after the fall had the power and the freedom of will that Adam had before he fell. Uh, that, that, is, that is the de facto position of Arminianism. 
makes, makes that which had been dead alive and which was evil good. That which had been unwilling, willing. And this is that regeneration which is so much declared in the scriptures. A new creation, a resurrection from the dead, a giving of life which God without us worketh in us. And this is by no means affected by the doctrine alone sounding without by moral suasion. That was a or moral persuasion. Uh, suasion was a word they used back then. We don't anymore. But, but that, that was the extent to which, our, and you can, you can read it everywhere, that was the extent to which Arminians would allow the Spirit of God to work by moral persuasion. Uh, but again, staying outside of the door of the will, keeping it entirely intact, Moral suasion. They're saying it's much more than that. Uh, Or by such a mode of working that after the operation of God it should remain in the power of man to be regenerated or not regenerated, converted or not converted, depending again on his will. But it is manifestly an operation supernatural, at the same time most powerful and most sweet, wonderful, secret, and ineffable in its power, according to the scripture, not less than or inferior to creation or the resurrection of the dead, so that all those in whose hearts God works in this admirable manner are certainly, infallibly, and efficaciously regenerated and in fact believe. Well, this is you can't imagine more beautiful and biblical language than this to describe the doctrine of the new birth. This is the doctrine of regeneration of the new birth. The denial... Of all of this, again, to come back to William Tennant, is what brought him out of the Anglican Church across the Atlantic to America in 1718. So here, we finally get to, in our last few minutes, uh, back to the Tennants. Uh, they, they moved first into New York, and William, the father, pastored a small Presbyterian congregation there in New York. After several years, he moved further inland into the frontier, into Pennsylvania, and he built a small house along the banks of the Neshiminy Creek. The Neshiminy Creek. You can go there today. You can see exactly where he went. If you're ever up in Pennsylvania, uh, I used to be. And so I've made a couple trips there. Uh, it's a wonderful little place. You can see William Tennant's tombstone. It's hard to find. It's hard to read, but it's there. Uh, this was about 40 miles south of Raritan, where Theodore Freelinghausen was currently at that time, uh, just coming in to gospel success, I might add, in 1726. Well, a few steps from the house that he built, he built a little log structure. This is the famous log college. He built it so that he could tutor his sons in to, to grow up to become ministers of the gospel, and then he brought in other young men in the surrounding area and began teaching them. Greek, Hebrew, uh, all the classics, but biblical exposition. It was a wonderful little private seminary. George Whitfield gives this account. He visited the tenants about a dozen years after they came to America in 1739 on, on Whitfield's first visit to America, which we'll get to several weeks down the road. The place, says Whitfield, wherein the young men study now is in contempt called the college. It, the law college, I'm sorry. Uh, it is a log house about 20 feet long and near as many broad. And to me it seems to resemble that school of the old prophets, for their habitations were mean. From this despised place, seven or eight worthy ministers of Jesus have lately been sent forth. They, they spread out all through 
the land, the countryside in Pennsylvania and other uh, states, all the way actually down to Virginia. Uh, we'll get to some of those men later on uh, in following weeks. There's a couple other graduates that we want to look at. But the first graduate of all was William's eldest son, Gilbert, uh, who is now 23 years old. Uh, he graduated, he was installed just a few miles south of Freelinghausen at New Brunswick. This was in early 1727, so he began his pastorate there. Uh, he immediately struck up a friendship with Freelinghausen because he had heard of the success just a few miles out. Something's going on at this church here. I want to know what it is and what it's about. And so they met, they became very good friends. Uh, the New Brunswick congregation was very much like Freelinghausen's Raritan congregations. Remember, he pastored four of them, actually. Remember how they were barren spiritually and, and void of a vital piety. Well, this is, was the condition in the New Brunswick congregation as well, which was a Presbyterian congregation. Freelinghausen took, took Tennant aside and, and counseled him in the ways of ministry that he had learned through, through his Reformed pietism upbringing and uh, also in his own experience in his congregation. Uh, he told him to divide the word aright and give every man his portion in due season. Tennant said, this excited me very much uh, to greater earnestness in my labors in the ministry. Well, half a year passed by. His congregation was unmoved, uh, very backwards in the ways of God. I began, says Gilbert at this time, I began to be much distressed about my want of success, for I knew not for a half a year or more that anyone at all was converted by my labors. Well, he grew deeply discouraged. You might even say depressed. Uh, the depression led to a sickness, physical sickness. He was very ill. He came very close to death. And it was at this time, he says, while he was very ill, very discouraged, laid up in bed, he said, then I had very affecting views of eternity. Very affecting views of eternity. I was exceedingly grieved that I had done so little for God. Even in this little statement, you can see, you, you can see uh, a cause and effect. Very affecting views of eternity. The holiness of God. And immediately, what was, what was, it was very Isaiah-like in the response. Immediately, having this view, this heavenly view, uh, I was exceedingly grieved that I had done so little for God. And so he, he was thrust down into a kind of sanctified grief over his unprofitableness, over his sin. Uh, this, you can repeat this experience over and over and over and over again in scriptural apostles and prophets, and uh, certainly in, since post, uh, in post-apostolic times. This is a pattern you see over and over and over again in, in ministers of the gospel. Well, Tennant laid himself out in prayer. He said that I might live a half year or more, he asked God, that I might live a half year more if it was his will, that I might plead more faithfully for his cause and take more earnest pains for the conversion of souls. The secure state of the world appeared to me in a very affecting light. And one thing among others pressed me sore, that I had spent so much time in conversing about trifles. I therefore prayed to God that he would give me a half year more to promote his kingdom with all my might. Well, he recovered in time, and he was a new man. He was an entirely different man than he was uh, before he had gotten sick. He threw himself into his work. He says, 
I examined many now about the grounds of their hope of salvation, which I found in most cases to be nothing but sand. Well, with such as these, I was enabled to deal faithfully and earnestly in warning them of their danger, urging them to seek converting grace. By this method, many were awakened out of their security and to all appearance effectually converted. Truly, it is wonderful to see how suddenly and unexpectedly secure sinners are pierced by the threats of the word. Well, these were some of the doctrines that he says at this time he was preaching. He enumerates them. I did then preach, he says, much upon original sin. Again, in in direct contrast to the Arminian teaching on original sin and its effects on the human will. Repentance. The nature and necessity of conversion, not not simply subscribing to the Westminster Confession, for example, which would have been tenant's uh, standard, as opposed to the Belgic Confession and the the three forms of unity that Freelinghausen was committed to under the Dutch Reformed Church. Tenant was a Presbyterian, and therefore it was the Westminster Confession and uh, the shorter catechism, and the larger catechism, in fact. So he preached much on original sin, repentance, the nature and necessity of conversion in a close and distinguishing way. Well, this is what he had learned from Freelinghausen. Not just general, uh, again, a kind of beating the air, uh, speaking in general maxims, and not just in an exposition, strictly speaking, or nakedly of the scripture, but he was applying it then. He was bringing it home to the condition and the circumstances in which he found his own people sitting in the pews before him. So bringing it home, again, under those covers, bringing the light. To sound, continuing, I keep interrupting him, I apologize for that. Uh, to sound the trumpet of God's judgments and alarm the secure by the terrors of the Lord. Well, just like in Freelinghausen's case, uh, there, was, there was great offense in the congregation. Men, men began to be offended, say, he's speaking too sharply, too, too pointedly. Uh, unwarrantedly. He's, he's prying. He shouldn't be doing that. He's a busybody. These were all the kinds of, uh, of uh, uh, responses that he was getting to this kind of preaching. Well, I found many adversaries, he says at this time, and my character was covered with unjust reproaches. So in his defense, he wrote a sermon the title of which is one of the great titles. Uh, it's right up there with sinners in the hands of an angry God as far as titles go. Uh, a solemn warning to a secure world from the God of terrible majesty. Well, this, this was not received well either. Again, they said he, he's, he's way too intense for us. He says, I wish that it were much more pointed than it is. It falls, that is this sermon and his words in it. It falls so far short. Conceive of God perfectly, and then you may perfectly conceive of and describe his anger against sin. Friend, thou shalt know by experience, either by a sound conviction here or by a dreadful condemnation hereafter, that I have not equaled, much less exceeded, the sorrows and pains of the damned. Well, I... It said earlier, and, and these are his words, these affecting views of eternity. You, you can see that over time, it wasn't just a passing thing. He was sick and then, you know, he was kind of overcome with emotion and so he had affecting views. 
But it was something that, was, that had been, been spiritually begotten in his soul in the course of his sickness. And it continued with him. And if anything, it increased over the next several years as, as we move forward into the Great Awakening. He seemed, said one witness, and this witness was Thomas Prince, who was a pastor in Boston to whom Tennant would come soon and preach in his church during the years of the Great Awakening. So Thomas Prince, William Tennant became, or Gilbert Tennant, I'm sorry, became very good friends. This is what Prince said when he stepped out of his pulpit, sat down to allow Tennant to preach to his own congregation. He seemed to have such a lively view of the divine majesty the spirituality, the purity, the extensiveness, the strictness of the law, with his glorious, that is God's glorious holiness and displeasure at sin, so that his hearers found themselves exposed in their many vain and secret shifts and found themselves unable to help themselves. Such a lively view of the divine majesty. Uh, Very much, I mean, when I read this, I, the, the picture I got is Moses coming down from the mount. This, this, this lively view of the divine majesty and Moses coming down with, with his face all shining with the glory of God. And it's as if Tennant and many other of the ministers at this time, and it was, it was, it was, it was the work of the Spirit. This is not just men uh, deciding to do something, but the Spirit of God had gripped them at this time. This is not something we can command or demand. The Spirit, indeed. Uh, like the wind, will do these things from time to time. And we always, the church always should be in a posture of praying for them. Nonetheless, here was Tennant as if, as if he was bringing the atmosphere of heaven down so that his hearers were being convinced of secret sins and so forth. Inevitably, again, this is what happens. Well, George Whitfield, the first time he heard Tennant in 1739, said this, Never before heard such a searching sermon. He convinced me more and more that we can preach the gospel of Christ no further than we have experienced the power of it in our own hearts. Now that, no more than we have experienced the power of it in our own hearts, is a very good summation of the emphasis in Reformed pietism, Puritanism. The power, experiencing the power of the gospel, the power of the doctrine of the gospel, experiencing it in our own hearts. Being deeply convicted, continues Whitfield, being deeply convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit at his first conversion, he has learned experimentally to dissect the heart of the natural man because his own heart had been dissected by the Holy Spirit at his first conversion. Uh, Therefore, he was speaking to some degree out of his own experience. Well, so much for Tennant this morning. Uh, We will come back to him. Certainly, we will come back to him in subsequent weeks. But in the meantime... Lord willing, next week we're going to move to another young minister who was in Connecticut just at this time commencing his own ministry, and that was the young Jonathan Edwards, who had been called to gospel ministry at precisely this very time. So we'll come to him, Lord willing, next week, Jonathan Edwards, and uh, we will close now in prayer and be dismissed. Father, thank you again, as we always thank you, for the great things of Jesus Christ. And may we experience... Him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the great benefits of His salvation in our justification, in our sanctification, and ultimately in our glorification. May we taste something of this in the coming hour. Be with us, be with the speaker, be with our pastor as he uh, expounds your word 
and be with our ears and with our hearts that we might profit from it, all of us, as, as one man even. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.